Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, patients, families, colleagues, and curious folk to the PM&R Report. Our podcast is brought to you by the University of Texas at Houston in conjunction with McGovern Medical School and TIRR Memorial Hermann Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. We bring you another segment of medical explanation, reviews of current literature, expert opinions, debates, and just plain interesting stuffs. This is Dikran Altunian, 30 resident physical medicine rehab at UT Health McGovern Medical School. Um, it is my pleasure to introduce our distinguished lecturer today, um, Dr. Stephen Wolf. Uh, he is a professor of Department of Rehabilitation Medicine at Emory University School of Medicine and uh, program director in restorative neurology. Uh, Dr. Wolf, welcome. Thank you. Can you start off by telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. I um, am a neuroscientist and a physical therapist. Um, my training in physical therapy was at Columbia University and subsequently did a master's in physical therapy after spending a few years in the U.S. Public Health Service as a practicing therapist. And then moved on because I had a lot of questions mm -hmm. and clinical practice to acquiring my uh, PhD at Emory uh, in um, neuroscience and subsequently a postdoc at the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm, Sweden. Mm -hmm. Never thinking I'd start my career back at Emory, hmm. which is how it happened. And then I've been there uh, as a uh, now professor in the department of rehab medicine, medicine and cell biology. Um, for over 40 years. I also serve as the director of training for our VA Center on Visual and Neurocognitive Rehabilitation. Great, thank you. Uh, today's uh, lecture was uh, very interesting and uh, there's a lot to cover. Um, it was on uh, machine-based learning and treating the extremities of post-stroke survivors, a progressive dynamic. Can you start off by um, just summarizing what uh, first, um, uh, what the objective of first was, the frontiers in rehabilitation science and technology. Sure. Uh, back in 2009, the American Physical Therapy Association uh, was mandated by its House of Delegates to have an external review of the profession with the intent of determining to what extent there might be some deficiencies in striving towards achievement of what's called a, a, a vision statement for the year 2020. To accomplish this, over 24 different agencies, foundations, consumer groups were brought together in a meeting that had the acronym PASS, Physical Therapy and Society Summit, mm. to address what those groups thought might be some deficiencies in our preparation for provision of services by the year 2020. Hmm. What was born out of that discussion was the need to follow up and identify our deficiencies and figure ways in which we could improve upon them. My interest lay in the fact that I happened to have been a member of the steering committee that helped organize the PASS hmm. summit meeting and, and agreed to do so, along with my colleagues, with the proviso that we could move the recommendations forward once the past meeting was over. Mm. From that, we recognized that there's so much to be learned that it would require input 
from not just us, but people from other professions. The key areas identified as deficiencies in our knowledge base and needed in preparation for the next decade included biosensing technologies, telerehabilitation, regenerative medicine, genomic rehab interfaces, and more recently we added to that imaging of the mm -hmm. body and what it tells us. I think it's fair to say if we look now 10 years forward to the year 2019, right. those are areas of importance and significance to our management of patients from a rehabilitative point of view. To accomplish this, we created a team of both PTs and non-PTs, which include engineers, physicians, neuroscientists, orthopedic specialists, mm -hmm. to participate in these four content areas and to create information bases that would then be assimilated mm -hmm. and put together um, on the APTA website. We came up with a SNAZI acronym first mm -hmm. for Frontiers in Rehab Science and Technology mm -hmm. because I think the group felt that that conceptually and from a gnomic and a name point of view sure. captured what we're trying to do. The exciting piece that is hard to capture mm -hmm. is when you bring these people together and you start looking at current information bases, mm -hmm. whether they're um, podcasts or uh, literature reviews, um, meta-analyses, mm -hmm. um, key presentations, um, is when we talk about them, other members are able to say in the discussion, you know, I never knew that, or I never looked at it that way. Mm -hmm. And to us, the fact that we could discover within our own group mm -hmm. information that's valuable, and then put it on a website of, right. uh, for the APTA, in the hope mm -hmm. that clinicians and educators would go to that website to embrace those concepts and begin to enter them into their curriculum was yeah. our dream. Um, to some extent, I'm, I'm sad to say that's failed. Mm -hmm. And we've had the opportunity several times now mm -hmm. to um, address what's called the Education Leadership Conference or Council, mm -hmm. uh, uh, which is a meeting once a year of all the program chairs and present the concept first and what we're trying to accomplish. And when these various program directors, over 200 of them, mm -hmm. realize that this is not an effort to bolster the research from one institution with more knowledge, mm -hmm. but rather uh, create a, a reservoir of information for anyone to use uh, and not tell someone how to use it. We had unanimous approval conceptually of what we're doing. Then the problem is how do you get people to use it and embrace the information? And that's when one discovers that often change is difficult. Right. Maybe some educators are reluctant to mm -hmm. take the time to modify their curriculum mm -hmm. to um, include some of these current concepts. Right. Others would argue, well, you're talking about biosensing technology. We don't have an engineering school. Right. Um, and we don't have access to, to those people. To which we would respectfully say, you don't necessarily need an engineering school. What you need are engineers, people who've had some experiences and right. are interested in the application of what they do in engineering to the human condition. Multidisciplinary. Uh, precisely, just, right. just for discussion purposes. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I think fundamentally the, there's no argument about the importance yeah. of making, encouraging people to change right. what they do 
for the betterment of the people they're training and educating, which ultimately is reflected in what we do for our patients, is uh, it's harder to, com- to, to, to achieve than I ever envisioned. Right, yeah. And, and with the hopes of coming up with a, a, um, some sort of a um, standardized protocol that you can, um, that, that has multiple facets and you can actually apply. Um, we were very careful, deliberately, not to tell the program what to do. Right. And what we did say is that you have to figure out within your environment mm-hmm. how this information, which you all acknowledge is important, right. can be used. We are here to advise you at no charge in any capacity we mm-hmm. can to be of help. Right. But what we can't predict or know is what is appropriate and necessary in the environment in which you teach and work. Sure. But you have to help us with that and then we can help you. And uh, to me, that's pretty inviting and pretty important. Mm-hmm. Still, the responsivity we got from the programs was, was very limited, and that's been very disappointing, mm-hmm. especially since I think it's fair to say we did this education and these interactions in a very, very non-threatening way, mm-hmm. not trying to make anyone feel better or worse than anyone else. Right. All right. Um, can we talk a little bit about uh, targeted feedback training? Okay. Um, one of the reasons I wound up at Emory was because mm-hmm. the man who became my mentor and sometimes called father of EMG biofeedback, mm-hmm. John Desmation, had moved there from Canada, and I wanted to learn under him. Okay. And he um, was kind enough to encourage me to, um, to apply, and I was fortunate enough to get a fellowship for my pre-doctoral work mm-hmm. and learn about EMG feedback mm-hmm. and something he had developed called single mode units, the ability to isolate and control mode units. And I saw this as a way into the nervous system. Right. And my interest specifically mm-hmm. was in cryotherapy, cold therapy right. to reduce spasticity. Mm-hmm. And do we actually monitor changes in movement output as a result of that, which is, leads to the potential for increasing control. That's why I went there. Never thinking that I'm going to become a biofeedback person. I just wanted to use his technologies to sure. answer questions that I have. And I learned quite a bit about that, yeah. both in human models and in animal models of stroke. Yeah. Um, and then wound up going to Sweden uh, to learn about microneurography, the ability to take a, a microelectrode, insert it into a peripheral nerve, and record from single axons in a person who was making very specific movements. Um, came back to Emory, thinking I could employ, employ that technology, mm-hmm. and um, uh, couldn't get funding from the NIH because I saw this as an invasive procedure. Yeah. And as a non-physician, I was not qualified to do this invasive procedure, despite the fact that in Sweden I had done hundreds of um, nerve recordings, and when I came back to finish mm-hmm. my postdoc at Emory, did even more. Right. And I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do at that point. Mm-hmm. Surprisingly, John let, decided to go back to Canada, mm-hmm. had developed this EMG biofeedback, mm-hmm. which I had nothing to do with, and called me into his office one day and asked if I would he, spearhead his initiative was he was going back to Canada mm-hmm. and told me that I had, I, of course, I was, I'm very flattered, let me think about it, and he told me I have till I get to the door mm-hmm. to give him an answer. <laughs> and I said, sure. And that's how all of this began. Um, a lot of folks on his team were upset that he was leaving. Um, 
saw me as an outsider coming in, once we had passed, got past the resistance, mm -hmm. we developed predictors of outcome yeah. by, by looking at targeted muscles and how they behave. Sure. To answer the question, what needs to change in the chronic stroke patients in terms of their muscle control using EMG visual and auditory feedback mm -hmm. uh, to succeed in better walking for the lower extremity sure. or the ability to grasp and manipulate objects. And as I mentioned in the talk today, uh, doing so um, in a functionally relevant manner mm -hmm. and demonstrating that that persisted. So out of that targeted training came the notion that instead of doing individual muscles, something I did not talk about today, maybe mm -hmm. we can train reflexes, which is symbolic of, of total muscles, uh, total muscle groups. Right. And we demonstrated that we can operantly condition spinal stretch reflexes um, mm. of the upper extremity. Uh, and um, then the question was, can we, well, we can do that in able-bodied folks. We then were able to demonstrate we could do that in the spinal cord injury. Right. And then we moved to stroke, in which we failed miserably. Mm. And in hindsight, the reason I think we failed is we never took into account the variations in cognitive deficits that patients right. have. Yeah. And several of them would simply, later learn, mm -hmm. weren't even attending to the visual representations of the reflexes after a while. A lesson hard learned, and the, you can't underestimate the importance right. of the cognitive capabilities or limitations that right. stroke survivors uh, present with. And that enabled us, from that point, to move on to predictors of what we look for mm -hmm. if we're gonna try something like the, the, the model that Edward Taub had developed in, in deafferented monkeys mm -hmm. of operant conditioning of getting the restoral and insensate for extremity, right. we decided to apply to stroke patients. Right. And the first publication of this came out in 1981, hmm. and then we subsequently moved on to doing forced use hmm. of the upper extremity in those patients who had met the, the inclusion criteria to predict successful outcomes in EMD via feedback. Mm -hmm. So that's how the entire constraint-induced movement therapy was born out of targeted single muscle EMG feedback. You mentioned um, the variety, uh, the the um, the spectrum of cognitive deficits in in, in stroke patients, uh, and during your talk, you talked about um, uh, it was very interesting the digital pictures and repixelation based on how well the patient does the the task. How does this pose a challenge for these uh, this patient population? Well, if I challenge you, mean how can we... As far as the cognitive deficits. Yes, and, that's a really good question. Right. No one has an answer to. Yeah. I would like to believe uh -huh. that if we take the concept of repixelating an, uh, an undigitized picture mm -hmm. into something meaningful, uh, I mentioned that when we did this work at Arizona State, those pictures, for reasons I never quite understood, were impressionistic paintings that were mm -hmm. back together. Right. And actually posed to the group at the time, why are we doing that as opposed to meaningful pictures of patients? Uh, for, for patients, which inevitably mean family members, uh, vacations, uh, uh, events in their lives which mm -hmm. have special meaning. So the question you're posing mm -hmm. is one that needs to be studied. In mm -hmm. those individuals with cognitive deficits whose attention span might be somewhat limited, right. does the interface of visual feedback that is related to events that are meaning to them, draw their attention and awareness more than the verbal feedback we give about their efforts in a specific movement or task. That's right for uh, evaluation because we're constantly struggling mm -hmm. with how do we enhance cognitive ability on the part of our, our, our 
patients and knowing that that's, those cognitive deficits are manifest in different ways. Sure. Can success of what it is we're trying to do, whether it's an incorporation of successful speech, mm-hmm. movement, visual acuity, mm-hmm. um, be built upon the recognition, a re-recognition of something that in the memory of that person is important, whether it be a grandchild, um, a vacation spot of meaning, um, a retreat of some place, anything that holds content-specific importance to the stroke survivor, can we engage their cognition Mm -hmm. better? To me, that's such an inviting and contemporary way of providing feedback. And if the picture does not repixelate perfectly, Mm -hmm. what does the person have to do to finish in the picture? Is the, the... the deficit in the clarity of the picture or its pieces, a mm-hmm. function of the deficit in the task the patient is performing. And what do they have to do? How do they figure out how to make this incomplete picture hold again? I would imagine that if I were a stroke survivor and the picture up there is one of my grandchild, mm-hmm. I sure would be doing everything I can to make sure. that look, I want to see that entire picture. Yes. And I have to figure out what I need to do, in my case, from a motoric point of view, to succeed. Yeah, that emotional connection definitely oh, yeah. the emotional motivates you. Precisely. Right. Because one of the things we don't yeah. do very well in the totality of our rehabilitation mm-hmm. is to consider um, a multitude of factors that influence the compliance sure. of a patient and what we do. And those can be uh, culturally based, mm-hmm. uh, they can be um, um, depression. Uh, or other emotional variables that we're trying to tackle at the same time we want to complete the task at hand. Right. Um, you discussed some uh, technologies, future technologies. One of the ones that you talked about was uh, the advanced uh, computer vision tools. Can you um, touch upon that a little bit more? Sure. Um, what my engineering colleagues eventually would like to do is to create uh, machine-based interfaces mm-hmm. uh, that are driven by a camera recognition of movement and the degree to which elements of that movement are, shall I say, abnormal. To do that, one first needs to have a, um, a complement of visuals that are scored mm-hmm. so that the relationship between the score and the aberration is constant and consistent. To do that requires looking at a heck of a lot of movements <laughs> mm-hmm. across a lot of therapists right. to see where they, what they see, because what you instruct algorithmically a machine to do is driven by the input it gets. Sure. So the input has to be consistent. So it's, it requires that, that the therapists who are on our team, working independently once they've been instructed to what we're trying to achieve by grading the amounts of deficits for movement components, is consistent across therapists and complexities of impairment. Mm-hmm. Once we have that, then one can create an algorithm of the engineer's camp. This is way out of my um, league that will uh, enable a recognition of movement or its aberration. And then to complete the algorithm, to provide a feedback, which I'm not quite sure yet the form will take, back to the patient saying, you're not doing this quite right. Consider a point A, B, or C whether that means showing them a picture back of themselves mm-hmm. of what looks to be wrong mm-hmm. for them to work on or some other vehicle of information to therapist-based, uh, to patient-based interaction uh, we haven't worked out yet. They haven't either. They can't really do that until 
the elements that go into the algorithm are completed. Mm-hmm. That is the therapists, how they score movement. Sure. And those components of movements, which I've shown you in my lecture today. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then based upon those scores and what is seen in the picture, instruct um, uh, digitally and through cameras uh, a feedback mm-hmm. to a patient that helps the patient identify where they're wrong, shall I say, or incorrect in the, in the movement relative to the task. Yeah. Unlike what we've done in the past, where you just have a person reaching towards an object, whether it's on, yeah. on a flat surface or they have to reach high, we've now changed this to 15 different functional tasks yeah. so that to facilitate compliance on the part of the patient, these tasks have meaning. You're not just repeating the same thing over and over. Mm-hmm. You're repeating a task, and those tasks will have names, mm-hmm. like um, um, put the top on a lid, so you have to have two objects and rotate. And what the patient will see is a visual, a picture of how it should be done. Mm-hmm. And then there, then when the go button starts, they have to simulate that with their hands. So they always know mm-hmm. there's a relationship between this thing they're doing with these objects that they have in their hands mm-hmm. and something meaningful that they would like to accomplish and do again. Right. It gives us more of an objective measure. Objective measure of functional, function. relevant activities. Sure. Very good. Very good. Um, so tell, uh, tell us about um, smart rehab. You, you uh, touched on that during your lecture today, smart rehab and tele-rehab. What are some of the future directions for that? Um, now that we've demonstrated that you can create a, a, a gaming interface mm-hmm. that is at least comparable in, um, to what a therapist would do in specific training in terms of the dosing time, Mm-hmm. Uh, the question then becomes one of um, home use, mm-hmm. um, monitoring that home use so it's successful, creating games that are meaningful to the patient, right. assuring the fidelity of those games and minimal problems, um, and then looking at the relationship between aspects of the patient's behavior mm-hmm. in a home environment, mm-hmm. I'll explain what I mean by that in a moment, mm-hmm. um, and uh, the degree to which they favor specific games and comply with them. Mm-hmm. Having said that to you, it's a lot easier said than done. Amongst the obstacles that we faced in the first tele-rehab study, mm-hmm. because part of this is the, the importance, the value of the patient on their home computer with their uh, camera screen, talking to the therapist on his or her camera screen from time to time. Mm-hmm. We sometimes, at least at this point, overestimate the computer savvy of patients in the home environments. Everything from the camera angle to inadvertently tilting down so the patient says, I can't see, can't see you, not recognizing that the camera's been moved. Right. To mm-hmm. the patient, calling the patient because they're not online, mm-hmm. not recognizing that somehow someone disconnected mm-hmm. the camera or the computer from the power source and they didn't even know it was disconnected. I mean, these are, for you and me, might be obvious troubleshooting things we might do. But we can't presume Mm -hmm. that a variety of patients with different uh, exposures to computers Mm -hmm. and technology will all be able to comply. The good news, as I indicated today, is that we probably are at that generation now Mm -hmm. where all potential patients and future patients will have grown up with the technologies. So these troubleshooting obstacles right. um, uh, may not be as profound in the future as they have been thus far. 
Uh, but to know that someone is doing this, uh, to monitor the fidelity in which they're doing it, to assure the safety in the home environment. There actually was one instance where the family dog started chewing at the power supply cord. And, um, you just never know all the factors that sure, yeah. you think you have a safe environment, mm -hmm. dedicated table, and location. And um, sometimes that's easier said than done. Yeah. Uh, so part of the problem is the environment in which the home-based training is to be done. Mm -hmm. uh, that which is a separate issue from the compliance of the patient or the family unit and actually engaging the system, the gaming system. But I hope that with each generation, patients that had grown up with gaming and they see something that's going to help them use their upper extremity, right. it could be a fun thing and they'd like to do as well as they could before they had their stroke, there'll be a, a greater... Um, um, emotional time and willingness to, to comply with yeah. what is being asked for them to, to be done in a home environment. Right, yeah. Gaming, virtual reality, those are some of the research avenues these days and in, in, in rehabilitation in general. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, this, uh, um, my last question um, touches on uh, the first initiative um, that you uh, mentioned earlier. Um, um, what what are your thoughts um, in integrating these new technologies in a uh, multidisciplinary treatment team where you have therapists, where you have clinicians, researchers? Um, what is the, um, in your opinion, what is the best approach in order to have everybody on board, including the patient as well? I think that what we missed and what I try to say today mm -hmm. is, is to interface technologies with rehabilitation requires an interdisciplinary team. Mm -hmm. This notion of working in silos is counterproductive and obsolete. Right. The problem in part that we face is this notion that for any one discipline, whether it's bioengineering, PT, OT, residency training and rehab, we have this curriculum and we have to accomplish these tasks. Mm -hmm. What needs to be done here is to to ask the question, what is the optimal way of accomplishing tasks and what should those tasks be? Do they need to be realigned or reconsidered? Mm -hmm. If we believe that technologies are an important part of progressing our future in both the usability and the environments in which something is being used, mm -hmm. it demands an interdisciplinary team. Um, when I talked, for example, with my colleagues at Georgia Tech, which is a, a nat natural tie-in for us at Emory, there is an interest level, but what you still get is some pushback because we have this curriculum and we have to complete these tasks and we're training bioengineers to complete the tasks. But what we pose to them is, under what context mm -hmm. do you want to complete the tasks? If you want someone to be able to construct an algorithm or build a machine, one needs to ask the question, in what context? If it is to be applied to the human condition in some way, does it not make sense to have those people who know a bit more mm -hmm. about the human condition right. engaged immediately? For those of us who treat patients, does it not make sense for us to know more about how these technologies will be developed and contribute to their development so that uh, we succeed? Right now, so often, we work in separate spheres. Right. So the engineers build a toy and uh -huh. say, use it. And we say, well, we might be able to use it if you modify A, B, C, and D. This is all a waste of time. 
in my opinion. And so to succeed requires all of us to take a good hard look at ourselves mm -hmm. and rethink the optimal way in which we can benefit our patients, especially in an age of technology and uh, electronic interfaces, information, uh, uh, accessibility that's not going to go away. Mm -hmm. Dr. Wolf, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a, a pleasure having you here and uh, hope to um, hear some more talks and uh, your wisdom in the future. Well, thank you for having me. I enjoyed it very much. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us. Ladies and gentlemen, as we close another session of our podcast, I would like to make it clear that we make every effort to broadcast correct information. We will double-check facts and assertions, but we do ask our listeners to realize that medicine is a constantly changing science and an art. One physician may have an entirely different way of doing things from another, and any views expressed are solely those of the person expressing them. We welcome any comments, suggestions, and correction of errors. We do not accept any money, services, or sponsorship otherwise from pharmaceutical, supplement, or device companies. By listening to this podcast or reading this blog, you agree not to use this podcast or blog as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others, including but not limited to patients that you may be treating. Consult your own physician for any medical issues that you may be having. This entire disclaimer also applies to any guests or contributors to the podcast or blog. Under no circumstances shall McGovern Medical School, any guests or contributors to the podcast or blog, or any employees, associates, or affiliates of UT Health be held responsible for damages arising from use of this podcast or blog. We are here to stimulate the dialogue. We are here to get the wheels spinning. We are here to spark new questions in the field of medicine. Thank you for listening.